Father, I just, <clears throat> again, I thank you. I praise you for <clears throat> the gift that you are. And again, we just want to, again, like a little child, come before you this day to focus on you, on what you've done for us, particularly at the cross. Uh, this is Communion Sunday, and so we pray that you would tune our hearts, tune our minds, tune our spirits to hear and understand and respond to the works of your Holy Spirit in a way that's of permanent value. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, this is the day that we remember Jesus Christ and his cross. And uh, each time we <clears throat> focus in on the night before Jesus died where he met with his disciples and for the last time celebrated a Passover supper with him. And <clears throat> So we pick up on the, the story in Matthew 26. It says, now as they were eating... Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So Jesus took the bread and wine, offered them up as symbols of his flesh and blood. Then he asked his disciples to eat the bread and drink the cup so that they might symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then he asked them to repeat this remembrance on a regular basis, and this is what we refer to as the Lord's table. We celebrate it once a month, and we do that by meditating on what it is the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, by examining ourselves, and that means asking God's Holy Spirit to point out areas in our lives where he's convicting us of sin, and then by confessing our sins, and then by participating in the elements. John 6.53 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, we're following the life of Christ, and this, this time it's, it's in the Gospel of Mark, and where we are right now, Jesus is on the final stretch of his public ministry. His, his crucifixion is literally days away. He's had a number of confrontations with the Pharisees where he's, he's clearly poking the bear. He's, he's goading them into seeing him as such a threat that they are forced to take him out. And one such confrontation occurs after he's telling them this parable of the vineyard, which we looked at last time. And Jesus uses this story of a, of a vineyard owner repeatedly seeking his share of the crop, only to be rejected and, and beaten repeatedly until he sends his son thinking, oh, surely they're going to respect my son. But instead of respect, his son is murdered. And we see Jesus clearly telling the religious leaders that God has sent them prophet upon prophet whom they've rejected and mistreated. Now the king of all prophets is there right in their midst. And Jesus knew and was communicating to them that they were about to kill him. And the story wasn't lost on the Pharisees. I mean, they knew they had been called out and they wanted nothing more than to take Jesus out. We pick up on Mark 12, 12. It says, and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So I just want you to picture the Pharisees. They're, they're still smarting from this bruising they took by trying to take Jesus on. And, and next, they're approaching him, and they approach him with these treacherous words. This is Mark 12, 13. 
It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, the first thing we, we noticed, we see a, a pairing up of, of two groups who you would think have absolutely nothing in common. Verse 13 says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And then the Pharisees were the externally hyper-religious types, while the Herodians had long before had given up any notion of religiosity. These, these guys were the followers of Herod Antipas, this, the pagan Jewish king from a long line of kings whose father had once tried to slaughter Jesus as a baby. You know, they say politics makes strange bedfellows, and that, that means having a political goal such as the elimination of Jesus sometimes brings together two parties who would never, never think of working together. You know, Jesus was quite willing to call out both the religious and the anti-religious ways that both parties chose to defy God. And his brilliance and his willingness to genuinely speak truth to power, it alienated him from both the Herodians and the Pharisees. And since they had already tried and, and failed miserably using the vinegar approach, they thought they would reverse tactics this time and, and try honey. And so we pick up on verse 14, and it says, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Uh, the first thing you notice about this is, is this just the marvelous way, the subtle way that God turns the words of people upside down. You know, time and again, you see men per pursuing their own wicked agenda, and then God taking that very pursuit of it and standing it on its head. I mean, their plan was to entrap Jesus by way of compliment. And by way of a compliment, they unwittingly lay out four different truths about who Jesus was. And the first thing they say is, they say, they say, we know you are true. Well, little did they realize how true a statement that, in fact, was. See, Jesus is not just a, Jesus is not just a speaker of truth. He doesn't just represent truth. His truth itself. It was Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know, we all have a, a relatively easy time grasping the first part of that statement when Jesus says, I, I am the way. I mean, we kind of get that. That much, I think, is simple. We're broken. We're fallen. We're sinful. I mean, every one of us from birth, so... So God himself came down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, and he came down to live a perfect life and then offered that life up on a cross so that we might, by faith in his sacrifice, have his righteousness instead of our own righteousness and therefore be able to stand before God now made perfect by Christ and now worthy of heaven. 
That's the way part of this statement. That's pretty easy to understand, if not so much to embrace. But Jesus, he's saying a lot more in this statement. He's saying he's not just speaking the truth. He's saying he is, in essence, the truth. I am the way and the truth. What does that mean? I mean, what's the difference between speaking the truth and being the truth? Because again, the, the Pharisees, they unwittingly stated the case. They said, we know that you are true. Yeah, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're merely speaking forth a, a, a truth that was known about Jesus, but not by them. When Jesus stated that he was the truth, he was proclaiming that he in the flesh was the living embodiment of everything contained in that five-letter word, T-R-U-T-H. The world that Jesus had come into was a, a world that was lorded over by the father of lies himself, and that was Satan. So into that world of lies comes a person who represents the complete totality of truth in every fiber of his being. Not, no one had ever been that way before. I mean, Adam had truth in an untested and untried way, and when it was tried, it, met, it failed miserably. But Jesus, from the moment he was born, through the testing that he underwent with Satan himself in the desert, he proved over and over again that everything about him was 100% truth. So he didn't just speak the truth. He was its literal embodiment. And secondly, they said, you do not care about anyone's opinion. You know, Baker's commentary gives the actual literal translation of what they said. This, this is actually the way they said it. They said, and not is it a care to you concerning no one. Now, now if you think about that statement, you have to ask yourself, has, has that ever applied to me? I mean, it's not that you don't care about others. It's that you don't give a moment's thought to how their opinion of you can shape your thinking. Now, there's only one group that I can remember that I can say that I was 100% uncaring about what they thought of me. I mean, 100%. But that group wasn't human. It was a small flock of turkeys that I raised many, many years ago. <clears throat> there was a little over a dozen, and I can genuinely state that there was not a care to me concerning any of them, at least what they thought. But they were turkeys both figuratively and literally, not humans. And I, I can honestly say I really didn't care about them other than wanting to fatten them up enough to eat. The difference with Jesus and with the humans that he was dealing with was that he genuinely had no care whatsoever about adapting his words or conduct so that he might gain some stature from them. And yet at the same time, he loved these people enough to die for them. I mean, just think about this inadvertent compliment these folks are giving Jesus. I mean, they said not only is he the living embodiment of truth itself, but he's 100% absent any of the concerns of what others thought about him, about his reputation, about his successes, about anything other than speaking the truth in love. I mean, no other human being could ever make that claim. And next they shared why. They said, for you are not swayed 
by appearances. Uh, You've you got to remember, we're, we're at the end of Jesus' public ministry. You know, folks had seen countless times when Jesus, to the absolute horror of his enemies and his followers, how he had reached out to individuals regardless their appearance. I mean, not only did he reach out and touch the ceremonially unclean like the woman with the issue of blood, but he went way, way beyond that, touching lepers and bodies that had been dead for days, all of which was not just ceremonially unacceptable, but appalling to their culture. And then on the other end of the scale, Jesus reached out to military folks like the centurion. That's, he was part of this hated class of occupying Roman soldiers in Israel. I mean, he called Matthew, a hated tax collector, into his own personal ministry, and he stopped a parade that was being held in his own honor in order to answer a lunch invitation from, of all people, Zacchaeus, another hated Jewish tax collector. I mean, appearances clearly did not matter to Jesus, and his enemies duly noted it. And finally, they said, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And you think about it, you say, what a strange statement to make. I mean, not, not only is Jesus truth embodied, but he, he speaks the truth regardless of who or what people he may be rattling because he doesn't care at all what station in life you occupy. He's simply teaching the truth of God. I, mean, I don't know how you could possibly get a stronger statement of affirmation, and it's coming from people who want to kill him people who are determined to trap him in a way they can use to foment the idea that he's a, a threat to Rome that needs to be taken out. And Jesus meets his enemies with his ultimate weapon, and that is truth. You see, he came not just to pay the cost of our sin, but he also came to be an example for us. Quote, that we would follow in his footsteps, as Peter put it. And so that raises a communion question, a series of questions. Are, are you known as a person of truth? Are you known as someone who cares not at all about the opinions that others have of you, someone who isn't affected at all by outward appearances, but someone who simply speaks truth about God? As the elders begin distributing the bread, just take some time to ask yourself, if you are following Jesus in those particular footsteps. And as they distribute it, I'm going to read to you this warning from 1 Corinthians 11. God says, but a let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So I, I repeat this every, every month. I, I make the statement flat out that communion is extremely serious business. <clears throat> and to enter into communion in an unworthy manner is to court disaster. And so I, I plead with you, if you're not absolutely confident that you're a child of the king, if you're not absolutely certain that you have by faith trusted in Christ as your Savior, or if you first need to be reconciled to your brother and sister before you bring the sacrifice of yourself here to the altar, and just pass the elements on. 
If you don't feel right about participating, then err on the side of caution and get right with God first. And as I say each month also, do not make the mistake on the opposite end of thinking that unless you're spotlessly perfect, you're unworthy to receive communion. The devil loves that too because that is a mistake that will preclude you from partaking. Now, being a child of the king doesn't mean that you don't sin. It doesn't mean that you don't fail. What it does mean is we recognize that the salvation that we've been given is a gift that no one has ever been able to earn, quote, by being good. And so we quote Dane Ortland, who says, in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. You know, it also means that when we fail, we, we are aware that we have sinned. And the reason why is because God lives inside of us. He's convicting us. And so we grieve as children who know that we have a father who longs to forgive us and cleanse us. God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, being a child of the king doesn't mean that you're sinless. It also means that we know that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, which means simply someone speaking on our behalf in heaven. 1 John 2, 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's just, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, because we have the righteousness of Christ and not our own, that's the reason why we are free to eat from his table. And so if you love your Lord, don't deny the privilege that he's purchased for you at the cost of his blood. You know, he lived the life we were supposed to live and then died the death we all deserve to die in our place just so that we could right now, right here, be made worthy to eat at his table. So take a moment and ask God for the grace and the wisdom and the courage to speak the truth the way he did. First Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take and eat. the Pharisees and the Herodians, they have absolutely no idea who they are up against. You know, their flattery may have worked with an ordinary man, but this was God incarnate. This was the source of all wisdom and knowledge, the one who inspired Solomon to write in Proverbs 29, a man who flatters his neighbors spreads a net for his feet. And the fact that they actually thought that Jesus would fall for such a transparent ruse indicates really what they actually thought of him. I mean, their compliments, that they were flat-out lies to them. And again, they were spoken to one who inspired Solomon to write, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth 
works ruin. And so they pose this question to Jesus. This is Mark 12, 15. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? See, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they thought they had Jesus boxed in. I mean, if he says, pay your taxes to Caesar, he's legitimizing a system that brutalized the Jewish people. I mean, there were no 1040s back in that day. And the way the Roman government collected taxes was to take an area, say, like Orange County and, and just assign a dollar value to it. I mean, let's say for argument's purpose, they would say, okay, Orange County, we want $5 million from you. And so then tax collectors would bid their services at collecting that amount, knowing that they would have the full authority of the Roman government to collect not only that $5 million, but anything else they could get their hands on. See, Rome didn't care if you collected $7 million, as long as they got their five. And so tax collectors, particularly Jewish tax collectors, they were detested as turncoats who would use the authority of Rome to extort money from their fellow Jews, not only collecting the legitimate taxes, but anything else they can get their hands on. And for Jesus to legitimize this system would be tacitly agreeing that exploiting your fellow Jews was acceptable. But on the other hand, if he, if he says, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, then he's out inciting out, outward rebellion. And so they cleverly think, either way, Jesus is going to lose. And Jesus responds, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them. And actually, this story is repeated in a number of the other Gospels. And Matthew's Gospel gives us a little more detail of how precisely Jesus expressed his knowledge of their hypocrisy. This is the way Matthew describes the same situation. Matthew twenty-two eighteen says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? See, Jesus didn't mince words when he responded by labeling and calling out these men specifically as hypocrites, despite the way many people love to picture Jesus as this kind of feminized sweetheart who would never say a critical word to anyone. That's not remotely what the scripture pictures Jesus as. I recently heard a short listing of all of the names that Jesus called, not just his enemies, but those who needed calling out. And it's actually startling. I mean, he called folks blind guides who lead people into pits. He called others fools or, or whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. That's a statement that was designed to produce profound disgust. He called others snakes broods of vipers. And those who we called hypocrites, he said, those who act godly just for show. And then there's the folks that he referred to as animals. He said in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In Luke 13, we have Jesus referring to Herod as a fox. It says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Uh, we, we have a translation problem with that. You see, we, we have a very different understanding of the word fox, of that word fox that, that Jesus called Herod, because we tend to think of fox as a compliment. Oh, he's foxy, he's, 
You know, we think of a fox as, as sly and cunning and smart. That's not the way thought, they thought of foxes at all. They thought of fox, first of all, as an unclean animal, but secondly, as something scurrilous, something unscrupulous as well. Now, now we have an animal that we use for that, that, that we use a very different animal. It's the one that Jesus would have used if he was in our culture, and that animal is a weasel. Now, Jesus is essentially saying, go and tell that weasel, but instead he used the term fox. Now, was Jesus being sinfully mean? Was he being sinfully nasty in the way he responded to these people? Well, Hebrews tells us no. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted. And I think it's incredibly hard for us to imagine. How could anybody pull that off? But understand one thing that was absent from Jesus that's present in all of us in the way we respond to our enemies, and that's malice. You know, First Peter says, put away all malice. And Jesus had none. See, all of us, we all have that sinful edge within us that responds with, with anger and hostility to anyone who threatens us. And it may be tamped down to a bare minimum, or it may be explosively obvious, but it's always there. And just imagine Jesus being able to be perfectly frank, perfectly willing to state exactly what he thought, just absent of any malice that accompanies our responses. So Jesus rather matter-of-factly tells them they're hypocrites. And then he says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, Jesus' answer, it proved so brilliant that in spite of their frustration at it, they had to admire it. And Jesus clearly points out that there's two distinct spheres of influence, both of which were due their proper respect. And one was God and the other was Caesar. And that is still true. I mean, Romans 13 says this. God says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Nicole, again, Paul wrote this as the subject of an incredibly wicked, evil, miserable government. 
But here we have God unequivocally stating that those in authority have been put there specifically by him. And so he calls us to obey those in authority. And Peter in his epistle, well, he, he echoes the very same thought. This is 1 Peter 2.13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's Peter's statement, and yet after Peter is miraculously released from jail by an angel, he clearly disobeys a direct order given to him by a legitimate government authority. We have that in Acts 5, verse 27. It says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. They're speaking about Jesus. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And on another occasion, after Peter had miraculously cured a crippled man, he was brought before the Sanhedrin. And they demand, they demand he stop preaching about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the authorities said in Acts 4.16. It says, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, it is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay, so which is it? I mean, do you obey God or do you obey man? Well, if you remember what Jesus said, he spoke about two distinct spheres of authority. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so I have a question as the elders begin distributing the cup. My question is this. What belongs to Caesar? Well, certainly a tax is necessary to protect and run the country. I mean, Christians have an obligation to honestly pay their taxes, I believe. They also have an obligation to civil order, and that is to lawfully obey every legitimate law as good citizens. But the key in that word is the word legitimate. You see, there's two specific spheres of authority that we operate in. There's Caesar's and there's God's. And when the earthly sphere tries to extend its authority into the sphere of God is when its legitimacy comes into question. You see, in short, God calls us to obey every and all laws up to the point where they cross over the boundary into anything that breaks the moral law of God, or for that matter, anything that exerts its authority over God's authority, period. And that's precisely what Peter was acknowledging when he said we must obey God rather than men. You know, we've been going through some interesting times with regards to our recent history, particularly with our history of government interaction with regard to COVID. <clears throat> There's been a lot of light recently shed on how the government authorities have arrived at their decision, and some of them were obviously illegitimate. 
from a biblical standpoint. I mean, the state of California made church gatherings illegal while it allowed gambling casinos to remain open. I mean, they clearly believed that revenue from gambling outweighed any health concerns, while gathering together in a church service was considered too dangerous to be allowed. And now that the fog of COVID is being lifted, we can see these decisions just like Jesus saw the Pharisees' challenge as, as something just chuck full of hypocrisy. And if you remember back to the COVID days in New York, well, we, we didn't have any government restraints. We only had the concern of infecting one another, which at that point was an extremely legitimate concern. But I look back at the churches in California, like John MacArthur's Grace Church, which faced enormous government pressure, ranging from hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines to government lawsuits and a threat to take over their property. And I laud him for the courage he had of saying simply to the California authorities, no, we are going to stay open regardless of your threats. And we didn't face that threat. But I can only hope and pray that we would have responded in a similar way. I mean, I wish I could say this was an isolated incident, but you know, I, I see this as just the start of what is eventually going to become a test of wills between the church and the state, between Caesar and God, that's going to be contested all across these United States. And if anything, I hope that our year-long study in the book of Revelation has pointed out to us that we are at war with the kingdom of darkness, and that kingdom routinely partners with Caesar. I have no delusion whatsoever that the state of New York is in any way anything other than hostile to the claims of Christ and his kingdom. And I say that by way of warning and by way of anticipation. At some point, the government is going to start insisting on bringing its sphere of authority and influence into this church. It's going to tell us that preaching on certain subjects is harmful and hurtful to people and therefore illegal. Or it's going to make some kind of mandate as to corporate worship. I mean, I don't know the specifics, but I do know that we in leadership are, are committed to pursuing peacefully the two different spheres that Jesus lays out, both Caesar and God's. But that once this government starts intruding into God's sphere, we have every intention of saying, no, thank you. And as you take the cup, just consider the cost of being a member of the kingdom of light. Of all those who trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right now, that cost is absolutely negligible. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world, they're, they're paying a far, far heavier price. And we know that it would be absolutely naive to assume that that could never happen to us. So right now, praise God for our safety. But realize that Caesar is right outside that door. And pray for grace and for wisdom and especially for courage. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So take and drink. This is the part that we call head, heart, and feet, where we try to 
extract some type of, of, of specific literal way of, of worshiping Christ. And how do we do that? How do we put this into practice? <clears throat> and again, so how do we prepare for the time when our faith is going to be challenged? You know, there's a, there's a Hollywood mindset that I think lots of us uh, Christians have. It's, it's something that says, you know, when the thought police, they, when they break into the church and they, they, they run up to the front and they put a gun to my head and they demand that I reject Christ, I will refuse. I will be faithful. I, that's a lovely sentiment, but I don't think that's the way challenges of our faith are going to unfold. They don't happen in those giant leaps. The way they happen is in little incremental steps. And you know you prepare for a big step by being practiced, by being adept at taking little steps. This is the way Jesus put it. In Luke 16, he said, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So what, what constitutes little in Jesus' statement? I mean, how do we get at that? Well, just pertaining to this particular subject, I, I would say that conversations with friends, neighbors, colleagues, relatives, I think that certainly qualifies as little. You know, casual interactions with people who don't share our view of the kingdom, that's one good way to develop your faithfulness. And another way to become faithful in very little is to be honestly seeking to obey another commandment that God gives us, one that he states in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. God is commanding us to be prepared to defend our faith. And you know, the challenges are coming, and they're coming fast and furious. I mean, how do you respond to an invitation to a gay wedding? That's a controversy that's all over the internet this week. How do you answer somebody who says the Bible promotes slavery or, or that it denigrates women? You know, just this week, I watched a trailer for, for a new YouTube series that was directed specifically at young people. It opens up with little kids chorusing in this little light of mine. It's entitled Satan's Guide to the Bible. It's a series of YouTube videos. It's narrated by a kind and handsome Satan. And it's directed at children. And it's designed to show them how full of greed, lies, and deception is the Bible and evangelical Christians. Whole series. Do you know how to respond to stuff like that? I mean, have you ever heard of podcasts that specifically prepare folks to defend this stuff, like, like Bible Thinker or Red Pen Logic, or I don't have enough faith to be an atheist or Living Waters? I mean, I've got lots more. Just ask me. I listen to lots of them. See, just tuning into a podcast like that, it's a small step to take. But I think in this instance, this is what Christ is asking of us. What he's saying is be faithful in little things to prepare yourself to be faithful in much. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, again, we are living in a world where uh, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, both kingdoms uh, are obvious. 
There's the kingdom of darkness, which is everywhere, and the kingdom of light, which is sitting right here, right now. Lord, we are here to interact with the other kingdom. We are here to grow our faithfulness. And part of the way that we grow that faithfulness is by honing our ability to give a defense. So I pray that you would give us that, that urge, that desire. And I pray also, not just for the wisdom, but for the courage that we need to put that into practice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.